Hello and welcome to the History Jar podcast. We're on the why this episode of No Plan Like Yours to Study History Wisely. So we've covered the Normans, the Plantagenets, the Lancastrians, and now we're on the Royal House of York. The House of York are descended from Edward III, just as the House of Lancaster are descended from Edward III. So they are really Plantagenets. But you'll be delighted to hear that we're finally arriving at their demise. If you recall from the last episode, Richard II was usurped by his cousin, Henry of Bolingbroke, or the Earl of Derby, depending which source you're reading. Obviously, both of them are the same person. Henry of Bolingbroke, Earl of Derby, went on to become Henry IV. Richard conveniently lost his appetite at Pontefract Castle and died. But nonetheless, Henry IV's reign was filled with conspiracies and plots. The reason for this was that Henry was descended from Edward III's third surviving son, John of Gaunt, whereas Richard II had nominated as his own heir the descendants of Edward's second son, Lionel of Antwerp. You remember the one who got poisoned in Italy. Now, Lionel had had one daughter, Philippa, and she'd married into the Mortimer family, and she'd had children of her own. Henry IV kept a close eye on the sons of the 3rd Earl of March and they were educated at Windsor. Um, But they remained the focus of rebellion throughout their childhood because their claim to the throne was better than that of the House of Lancaster. And because of the family networks that existed, the aristocracy changed their allegiance depending on where they thought they might get the best deal. For example... The Earl of Northumberland, as we saw in last episode, initially supported Henry IV, but when the Percy family became disenchanted with the new king, because they didn't benefit as they'd expected, they just changed sides. Now, ultimately, Northumberland's son Hotspur rebelled against Henry IV. One of the reasons was that Henry IV had not paid the ransom for his brother-in-law that had been demanded by Owen Glendower. Hotspur's wife was Elizabeth Mortimer. If nothing else, it gives you a flavour of the complicated nature of politics and family in the 15th century. Don't worry, I am getting to the House of York. The claim to the throne that originated with Lionel of Antwerp eventually came to rest in the hands of a female Mortimer, Lionel's great-granddaughter, Anne. Now, she had to be married off to a suitable husband, and that suitable husband, well, he wasn't that suitable, they got married in secret, was Richard of Conisborough, Earl of Cambridge, the son of Edmund of Langley, the Duke of York, although there is a conspiracy theory there, and the Duke of York didn't leave his second son anything in his will. It was just chance that Richard's son, also called Richard, eventually became the Duke of York. But let's not worry about that just now. It's enough to know that Anne Mortimer married Richard of Conisborough, Earl of Cambridge, the son of Edmund of Langley, Duke of York. The House of York itself is a more junior branch of the royal family than the Lancastrian branch, but the marriage to Anne Mortimer ultimately gives them the better claim to the crown than the one belonging to the House of Lancaster. So, 
Richard of Coningsborough, who is descended from the fourth surviving son of Edward III, is up to his neck in the familial politics of the period. He secretly married Anne Mortimer in 1408, which can't have pleased Henry IV very much. Anne died in 1411 after the birth of her third child. Richard, increasingly dissatisfied with his position in society, ultimately rebelled against Henry IV's son, Henry V, just as he was on his way to restart the Hundred Years' War. So Richard of Cambridge was part of the Southampton plot because that's where the plotters were tried. It's also called the Cambridge plot because obviously Richard of Cambridge was involved, so it depends which history book you're reading. So Richard of Cambridge was executed on the 5th of August, not the 4th, the 5th of August, 1415. You're going to hear much more of that sound over the next couple of episodes, so probably get used to it. Anyway, Richard's aim had been to place his brother-in-law, Edmund Mortimer, the 5th Earl of March, on the throne. However, Edmund was able to persuade Henry V that he had known nothing about the plot. I'll talk a bit more about Edmund shortly. Shortly after his execution, Richard of Cambridge's elder brother died, and Richard's four-year-old son, another Richard, Richard Plantagenet, became Duke of York. So we are at the Royal House of York. So far as Edmund Mortimer is concerned, he was treated well by Henry V. He was actually released from his semi-captivity when Henry V became king. He went on to be part of Henry V's war council and he witnessed the king's will. He actually sat on the commission which saw the Earl of Cambridge condemned to death. Um, He took part in Henry V's military campaigns, took part in the coronation of Henry V's new wife, Catherine of Valois, and was appointed to the Regency Council of young Henry VI, which was where he came unstuck. He fell out with Henry's uncle, Humphrey of Gloucester, and found himself being sent off to Ireland, um, and he died of plague whilst he was in Ireland. His claim to the throne now passed to Richard of York. Of course, that might have been that. It might have been a footnote in history. Had Henry VI been a strong king and, of course, continued to be victorious over the French, unfortunately, this was not the case. Richard of York was twice descended from Edward III. Through his father, Richard of Cambridge, he was the great-grandson of Edward, remembering that the House of York is actually a more junior branch of the family. But through his mother, Anne Mortimer, he was the great-great-grandson of Edward III from the branch of the family that was more senior to the House of Lancaster. And if we're going to add complications into the equation, which we might as well do because your heads are probably already spinning, we've also got to remember that Richard of York is the direct descendant of a traitor who was executed for his part in the Southampton plot. So he was fortunate to be allowed to inherit titles and lands because, of course, his father was guilty of treason. Richard of York's competing claim to the throne became more important as Henry VI descended into madness and as Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou, became increasingly unpopular. He'd inherited not only the estates of his uncle, Duke of York, but also the vast Mortimer estates from his mother's family, making him incredibly wealthy. It's actually incredible that he was allowed to inherit it at all. His wardship, because he was a minor when his parents died, was sold to Ralph Neville, the first Earl of Northumberland, 
um, just to confirm really that everyone was related to everyone else because Ralph's second wife was Joan Beaufort, who was the youngest child of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. So there you have a Lancastrian royal link. Eventually, Richard of York was married off to Rolf and Joan's daughter, Cecily Neville. Basically, Richard was as royal as it was possible to be. He was royal twice over through his own bloodline, and he was married to John of Gaunt's granddaughter, um, so a royal wife as well, albeit one with a slightly dodgy background, if you recall the, the Beaufort ancestry. And he was related to everyone. The whole family was intermarried. There were also a huge number of Nevilles, and we're not going to get into them at this moment in time. Richard was a successful soldier, and because of his wealth, he was able to pay his own army from his vast resources. But what this ultimately meant is he became very dissatisfied as Henry VI favoured his Beaufort connections in the form of the Duke of Somerset over Richard of York. It might not have been so bad if John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, had been a good soldier. As it was, Henry's decision to provide men for the Duke of Somerset denied Richard the men that he needed and Beaufort actually achieved nothing. The resentment that flared in France would help to simmer and, and fuel the flames of civil war. Ultimately, Richard moved from being a resentful leader of the opposition to protector during Henry VI's breakdown, to rebel. May 1455 is the kick-off date for the Wars of the Roses with the First Battle of St Albans. Inevitably, there was lots of this. Unfortunately for Richard, Duke of York, he's also the Richard of York who gave battle in vain at the Battle of Wakefield on the 30th of December 1460. His eldest son, the Earl of Rutland, was killed whilst fleeing by Blackface Clifford, what a name, um, in revenge for the death of his own father at the First Battle of St Albans. Richard's head ended up on a spike on Micklegate Bar in York. Now, Richard's son, Edward, inherited his father's claim to the throne. In 1461, he won the battles of Mortimer's Cross and Towton, which made him King Edward IV. Of course, at that point, there were actually two kings in England. Henry VI now spent a considerable period of time on the run. He was actually captured and eventually murdered quietly after the Yorkist victory at the Battle of Tewkesbury. But more of that in due course. For the time being, let us think of Edward as tall, handsome and with a remarkable way with the ladies. Now, he actually committed a bit of a blunder in his marriage. In 1464, he secretly married Elizabeth Woodville. And this resulted in a fallout when it became known with his cousin, the Earl of Warwick, also known as the Kingmaker. The Kingmaker, who quite frankly had been doing a lot of the heavy kingship work, had been trying to arrange a foreign marriage with the French. So the kind of marriage that you would expect a King of England to make. However, when it became known that Edward had actually married Elizabeth Woodville, the Earl of Warwick was made to look like a complete idiot. And this led to his own resentment and ultimately he too rebelled against his king. In the meantime, there would be questions about the legitimacy of Edward's marriage 
as it was suggested that he was pre-contracted to Lady Eleanor Talbot. Talbot was her maiden name, Butler was a married. A pre-contract in medieval times was as good as being married. So if you said you were going to marry a girl and then made love to her, you were effectively married. Which meant that when he married Elizabeth Woodville, he was actually effectively entering a bigamous marriage, which meant that any children he had would be illegitimate. At the time, he did what kings were supposed to do, though. He was victorious in battle and had a nursery full of children, including two boys. So had those two boys been adults when he died, probably the Yorkist succession would have continued without any problems. Unfortunately, he died unexpectedly, possibly from too much partying and gluttony. Um, He lived long enough to name his brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, as protector until his 12-year-old son, Edward V, was old enough to rule. I suppose now is as good a time as any to get rid of various and extraneous members of the royal family. After the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, Henry VI's heir, Edward, died. He may have actually been murdered on the battlefield. On the night that Edward IV got back to London... Henry VI was murdered. Someone bumped him over the head whilst he was at prayer in the chapel at the Tower of London. And, of course, there were other sons of York with claims to the throne. I've mentioned the Earl of Rutland, who was felled at Wakefield. Edward obviously became Edward IV. But George, Duke of Clarence, resented his brother and managed to plot against him once too often. He's the one who was drowned in a butt of Malmsey in 1478. What a way to go. He left a son called Edward, who became the Earl of Warwick, and a daughter, Margaret, who we shall hear more about in future episodes. Suffice it to say, this is involved. Edward IV's son, Edward V, the 12-year-old, was never crowned. His coronation was planned, but Richard of Gloucester declared Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville to be invalid due to the pre-contract with Eleanor Butler, who had conveniently died in 1468, so no one could ask her. She had been widowed and her property and inheritance was in question, and she had turned to Edward for help. So it fits the pattern of Elizabeth Woodville's courtship with Edward. Um, but Elizabeth Woodville had the sense to have a witness to her secret marriage. Edward, as I've said earlier, was a bit of a ladies' man. He boasted that his mistresses were the holiest, wittiest and wisest of women. Eleanor was the holy one. The wittiest or merriest was Jane Shaw, who probably deserves a podcast in her own right. And his last mistress was Elizabeth Lucy, who was the mother of Arthur Plantagenet, who became Lord Lyle. In any event... Richard III's title as King of England was ratified in the Titulus Regulus of January 1484. Edward V and his younger brother Richard became the princes in the Tower, whose disappearance has caused much speculation over the centuries. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Richard III, however you want to think of him, has had some bad press over the years, thanks to that nice Mr Shakespeare. And, of course, the fact that the Tudors defeated him at the Battle of Bosworth. These days, he's better known as the King Under the Car Park. On the 25th of June, 1483, Richard was declared king. Edward V and his brother Richard weren't seen after August that year. 
There was a rebellion in October that resulted in the execution of the Duke of Buckingham, who was, incidentally, related to Margaret Beaufort, who was plotting on behalf of her son Henry. It's not exactly as if Richard was having a lovely time. His own son Edward died in 1484, and his wife Anne Neville, the daughter of the kingmaker who he'd married in 1472, died in March of 1485. He named his nephew John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, the son of his sister Elizabeth, as his successor, and entered into negotiations to marry Joanna of Portugal, which rather suggests that he wasn't planning to marry his own niece, Elizabeth of York. If nothing else, it demonstrates that conspiracy theories and fake news are nothing new. In August 1485, Henry Tudor, the son of Margaret Beaufort, and we'll go through all of that in the next episode, and his uncle Jasper Tudor, landed in South Wales. On the 22nd of August 1485, Richard III became the first English king to be killed in battle since King Harold in 1066. The reason in part for him losing the battle was a result of Lord Stanley and Henry Percy, the fourth Earl of Northumberland, um, who didn't commit their forces to the battle, or certainly not in time. Lord Stanley was married to Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort, So, in effect, we've come full circle, back to the way in which politics and family are more or less one and the same thing in the 15th century. You might be interested to know that the Earl of Northumberland was murdered by his own tenants, ostensibly in a tax riot, but more practically because they resented the fact that Richard III had been toppled from the throne, and they regarded the Earl of Northumberland as a traitor to the Yorkist king. Whilst Richard may not have been popular in the South, his passing was much regretted by the people of the North, as is recorded in the City of York records. In 2013, the skeleton found beneath a car park in Leicester was confirmed by DNA to be that of Richard III. The skeleton had suffered ten injuries in total, eight of them at the time he died. Two would have been sufficient to kill him and some of them appear to have been inflicted upon him after death. He really did have a curvature of the spine. His skeleton reveals scoliosis, but there is no evidence of any of the other deformities which Shakespeare writes about. Richard III was the last Plantagenet King of England. Plantagenet blood became a bit tricky during the reign of Henry VIII, even though his own mother was Elizabeth of York. Being a Plantagenet or a de la Pole became downright dangerous by the end of Henry's reign. And of course, there would be plenty more twists and turns in the monarchy. But as a result of the DNA research to identify Richard's skeleton, it became clear that somewhere in history there has been at least one case of false paternity, both after Richard III's time and more intriguingly before Not that it makes any difference to history. No arrows this week. So for the last time, I think we should be hearing this. We're on the verge of leaving the 15th century. And the medieval period will be embarking upon the Tudors in the next episode. The Beaufort family tree by which the Tudors claim the throne will take us back for one last time to John of Gaunt. But more practically we have arrived at a period when this was becoming more familiar. 
the Wars of the Roses did not rely on gunpowder-based weaponry. But there wasn't much in the way of sieges during this period. Nonetheless, in 2009, it became clear from the archaeology that the Battle of Bosworth saw the exchange of artillery fire by both sides. However, it's not until the Tudor period, and even then, not until 1547 and the Battle of Pinkie, that firepower becomes a major requirement for victory on the battlefield. Nonetheless, castle architecture is changing. Instead of arrow slits, castles are being fitted with embrasures and bastions for cannon. Having flitted from DNA to medieval weaponry, it's probably time to flit to books. Um, We're well into the realms of Philippa Gregory. She makes excellent use of the scandals and gossip recorded at the time. Elizabeth Woodville's mother, Jaquetta, really was accused of being a witch, though I do get a little tired of finding her novels filed in the non-fiction section of second-hand bookshops. And just because something is written... In the Chronicles of the Time, as rumour and gossip, doesn't make it the truth. More of that later. Um, Back to the books, there is, of course, Conigledon's Wars of the Roses series. Um, Under the Hog, first published in 1937, is still a good read, as is Sharon Penman's The Sun in Splendour, which I think was published in the 1980s. My own favourite is Josephine Tay's The Daughter in Time, which looks at the mysterious disappearance of the princes. And for those of you who like blockbuster TV series, there's George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. All I have to say is winter is coming. And then move swiftly to Venora Bennett's Figures in Silk and Joanna Hickson's Red Rose, White Rose, which tells the story of Cicely Neville. Edward IV and Richard III's mother. There are plenty of non-fiction books by authors who are both pro and anti-Ricardian. I really enjoyed Thomas Penn's The Brothers of York if you're looking for something Wars of Rosie, House of Yorkie. I don't think that actually is a proper sentence. And by the time you listen to this, you may already have watched the first episode of The Luminaries, which is on Sunday the 21st of June at 9pm. It's an adaptation of Eleanor Catton's Booker-winning novel. So it's a tale of love and greed. Um, And it's set in the 19th century with the New Zealand gold rush. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be good. And I'm hoping that if you haven't seen it already, you'll be able to find it on the iPlayer pretty easily. Something less cheery, certainly without the romance, I suspect, is the Radio 4 programme, The Long View. Um, Now, this is first going to be shown on Monday, the 22nd of June, um, but it's looking at the unforeseen consequences of the Black Death, so the decline of feudalism, amongst other things. I've really been enjoying the BBC 4 programme, The Art of Persia, with Samira Ahmed, and, of course... I'm quite upset to think that a house through time finished last week. 10 Guinea Street, Bristol, has seen many ups and downs, but we arrived at the present day with the last episode, taking in the Second World War and the house falling into decline before being restored. Apparently, he's looking for a house in Leeds, so I'm looking forward to the next series. And by he, of course, I mean the eminently watchable David Olusoga. 
I think that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and haven't become too confused by the various interfamilial relationships. And next time we shall be moving on to the Tudors. In the meantime, stay well and I look forward to seeing some of you in my first Zoom class on the 1st of July. Bye!